For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Jesse David Fox. This week's guest is Kumail Nanjiani. I've been trying to have Kumail on the show for a while now. It's actually been so long that it's possible that you might not even be familiar with the fact that he did stand up at all. Now that he's an Oscar-nominated screenwriter slash big superhero movie star, whose next project is a largely dramatic turn in Chippendales, out on Hulu November 22nd. Or like currently, Kumail is hosting a show with Vox Media and Apple Podcasts called Little America that tells the story of the immigrant experience in America one story at a time. But he was, or or is, a stand-up. A very good one uh, that I loved seeing for years before acting got in the way. So much so that when given an opportunity to record a live podcast with him at Vulture Festival earlier this month, I made it my goal to convince him to get back on the mic. Did I succeed? You and time will be the judge. As always, we start with the jokes. Specifically in this case, a few of my favorites from Kumail's 2013 Comedy Central special, Beta Male. So here is Kumail Nanjiani. You guys know that thing where they try and sneak in like creepy stuff, dark stuff into kids' movies? You know what I'm talking about? Like they try and like sneak in grown-up stuff? You know, like in Lion King, they say in the sandstorm you can read the word sex. Yeah? Or like in Wizard of Oz, they say in the corner you can see somebody hanging. I wish sometimes it would happen the other way around. You know, like it would be like, uh, did you guys see that movie Hostel? You know that scene where they cut the guy's Achilles tendon and he's bleeding everywhere and he can't walk? In the corner, you can see a kid tasting cotton candy for the first time. <laughs> it is so beautiful, you guys. Watch it every day. You guys are nice, I'll tell you a personal story. I'll tell you about the first time I remember crying, okay? I was, why are you laughing already? You just pictured a little Pakistani boy crying and that was humorous to you. We're not at the, all right. I was, uh, for, first time I remember crying, I was five years old. It's not the first time I cried. That would have been fucking terrifying for my parents if I hadn't cried till I was five. People would ask my parents, they go, how's Kamel? Oh, he's great. He's four. He hasn't cried yet. Pretty sure he can't feel sadness. That's some serial killer shit, right? He just sits there like, where is the cat? Bring me the cat. First memory of crying, I was watching an ugly duckling. Oh, yeah. All these pretty ducklings are so mean to this one ugly duck. And I felt like an ugly duckling as a kid, you know? I remember just like bawling, like just crying, tears down my face, just like hiccuping from crying. Went to my mom for comfort and to make me feel better. My mom didn't say, you know, beauty on the outside does not matter, Kamel. It's beauty on the inside that makes a person. She didn't say that. 
to make me feel better, my mom was like, Dutch can't talk! <laughs> also, these ducks don't even exist. Look at that. Someone clearly just drew that, Kamel. Stop crying, they're not real. Awful way to handle that. But my parents, like, they would let me watch like they, the weirdest stuff. Like when I was eight, I swear, I was eight, I went to the video store with my dad and he let me rent The Elephant Man. I thought it was a superhero movie. You know, like Batman, Iron Man, Elephant Man. He has the strength of 20 men. No, he doesn't. He has the sadness of 20 men. Do you guys know that movie? The guy with the fucking face. And they're trying to get the girl to kiss him just to fuck with him. And he's like, I'm not an animal. Devastating. I was eight. That movie took something from me. Like, I'm sure I lost the ability to smell rain during that movie. I turned to my mom and I was like, thank God movies are fake, huh? And she's like, actually, no, this one is real. That is an actual disease anybody could get at any time. Good night. <laughs> I think that's, like, I like horror movies now. Like, I saw this one, Freddy vs. Jason. Do you guys know that one? It's pretty awesome. Oh, the director is here. I just sit there, Freddy's sitting there. It's good! He's good. But it's, you know, it's Freddy from Nightmare on Elm Street versus Jason for Friday the 13th. Like, fine. why did it take us so long to put them in the same room? They're not gonna get along. Alpha males, there's gonna be a battle. It's not like they played Uno, you know, because Freddy can't hold cards. And Jason cheats at Monopoly. <laughs> He's just a monster, you know. But it's a fun movie, but there's a part in it where Freddy has to choose between killing a white girl and killing a black girl. And Freddy goes, how oh, sweet, dark meat. Yeah. And then he goes after the black girl, which is not surprising, given what he's just said. <laughs> but there was like a groan from the audience at the theater when I watched it. Like, people were disappointed in Freddy Krueger. <laughs> Please keep on clapping for Kumail Nanjiani. Hi, everybody. I was sweating in the back <laughs> watching that. Jeez. What's the last time you watched that? Uh, uh, 30 seconds ago? <laughs> yeah, before that, yeah. Well, oh, my God. Years and years. Years what, and years. What do you think? <laughs> I think that guy's going places. <laughs> um, I, you know, I like those jokes. I think I would, you know, it's one of those things that's, that's nine years ago. I haven't done a special since then. Mm -hmm. And I kind of feel like in that, with my delivery, sometimes I feel like I'm pushing in mm -hmm. a way where I, could, I can tell I'm not like fully comfortable on stage. Yeah. Um, so that's sort of all I can hear is that sort of um, what I know to be nerves and discomfort on yeah. stage. How do you feel about how you're dressed? <laughs> Not now. You look great now, but in that. 
By the way, not feeling great about this either. <laughs> I didn't. That's why I, I didn't want to realize bring it up. it's it's all the same. Um, how do I feel about how I'm dressed? Is this a standard question on this podcast, or I, I I'll say this: I know you didn't like how you dressed for that special. I didn't because <laughs> I I didn't know how to dress and I didn't have any money and that hoodie was like a very expensive hoodie. By that I mean it was you know maybe like $100, $80 <laughs> or something. It is an expensive hoodie. 2013? It, it doesn't show. <laughs> no, so I, I didn't really do a good job of... Th there's a lot of stuff in that that, you know, I, I would change. I should just go re-record that special. <laughs> yeah, right now. Yeah, here do we go. Do it right now. Do you remember everything? About the first time I cried. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a podcast about jokes. How did you write jokes? What was your process? How did it evolve? I believe you're a right everyday guy. Yeah, so I, the types of jokes I wrote really changed, um, and that was sort of the beginning of the new mm -hmm. way that my jokes were. Um, I would, you know, for a long time I was in Chicago and I was just kind of like waiting for, I don't know, God to speak to me, <laughs> which is how everybody was. Then they're like, oh, you can't like force it. You have to wait for the heavens <laughs> to open up. Just such bullshit. <laughs> yeah. And at one point, I decided that I would write for at least 10 minutes every day. Mm. And that like, changed my life. Because um, sometimes it would just be 10 minutes, but most of the time, it would go longer. You know? I had to at least write for 10 minutes without stopping. And it's called free writing, and without like, deleting mm. anything and without judging. And so that really took the pressure off. Because sometimes I would feel like any time I had to write, it had to be really good. And when I took the pressure off having to be good when I was writing, it, it genuinely changed my yeah. life in, in so many ways. Um, so that's how I would write. And usually in the beginning it was all sort of one-liners, yeah. you know, like in a minute I could tell like four or five jokes. Yeah, and then so uh, also in the special there's longer stories. Would you be word perfect for everything? Like is ev was everything written down? Everything was written down. I would always write down everything and I would have like the big word doc and where the laugh lines were, I would have like bold. Yeah. And I could just look at it and see if there were enough laugh lines or not. But then, when I was, you know, really good, sort of, at, like, the performance aspect of it, which I would say, I had, like, a few years where I was, like, honestly, I just was, like, feeling very confident <laughs> in my stand-up for a few years. And I, that's what I miss most. Yeah. That feeling of being confident? Uh, in my stand-up, yeah, yeah. you know? I don't have that level of confidence at anything in my life <laughs> now. I really don't. Yeah. I really don't. There was a, a now I, it's, it doesn't feel egotistical to say it now because I don't have it now. <laughs> but there were a few years where I was like, I felt like I'd go up in front of any crowd in any city and any stage and do really well. Yeah. Um, and I had that like full belief. How did it evolve? Were you word perfect on long jokes? No, I would sort of try and remember them on stage yeah. and it would be different. And if I was really good, they would come out pretty different because I knew what the joke lines were. Mm -hmm. um, but getting to the joke lines would keep me in the moment if I wasn't um, you know, word perfect. So yeah. I would write everything word perfect, but I would try to not be word perfect. Yeah, and try to stage. forget it so that you don't just, you're not just reciting. You're yeah, I try to be loose on stage. And when I was feeling really confident, I would do this thing where the, the game was how long can I go without doing mm. any material on stage? So I'd go on stage and truly the plan was no plan. I was like, I do not know what I'm going to say until I get to the microphone. And that was the game. It was like, yeah. I'm going to pick up the mic and figure out what to say and see how long I could go without doing a single joke. What was the longest you were able to go? 
I probably have done a full 20-minute set without, but never like yeah. a 45-minute set, yeah. like fully riffing. But I, I had a lot of like sets where, where it was like really just sort of riffing. And you know, if it's working, it's yes. really pretty great. So the first step with writing often is just sort of observing that there might be a joke to write in that area. What, what did that feel like for you, when you're, especially when you're watching a movie, to be like, what is like happening in your brain? Be like, oh, there's something here. Remember that. Yeah. So when I was first doing stand up in Chicago, all my jokes, like I said, were sort of one liners. And I really had this like that really on stage is sort of how I am off stage. Before that, I wasn't like that. I had like sort of a persona on stage because I was so nervous. So I was my thing on stage was to be very nervous. Pete Holmes still makes fun of me <laughs> for it all the time. He does impressions of old Kamel. <laughs> They're not flattering. <laughs> His new Kamel sucks too. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, so, because uh, I was nervous, there were only certain kinds of jokes I could do. I should say there were certain kinds of jokes I couldn't do. I couldn't really do anything that was personal. And I don't mean personal in the sense of opening my heart and my soul. I mean, I even like well, I watched a movie or something that <laughs> happened to me. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't do. My persona would not allow for that. And I remember the night I was like doing stand-up on stage at a place called the Lincoln Lodge, which is where I met Emily, mm. uh, the woman I married. <laughs> um, weird way to say wife. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I thought you were going to be this subject of the movie about... <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and I was on stage, and I had just seen an episode of Star Trek that I really liked. And I was on stage, and I was like, shit, I really want to... I think I have something funny to say about that Star Trek episode, but I can't do it with the persona I have. And so that was the moment I yeah. was like, okay, I have to change myself on stage so that I can sort of talk about whatever I want to talk about. And that ended up being something that's close to how I am off stage. Yeah. Do you, does your brain still do it? Like, does your, your watching thing, you're living around, be like, that's the thing. Like, do you, are you still, even when you're not doing stand-up, does your brain, you know, it's a muscle that you develop? Yeah, but it really is a gear you have to switch into, you know. Um, is that what you do with gears? You switch <laughs> gears? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You switch into them. You switch into <laughs> gears. Because um, when I was really doing stand-up, you know, you're sort of going along like, oh, a, a light that looks like a candle, that's really funny, right? <laughs> you're just sort of like going all the time for like, oh, well, what's the deal with red numbers? It really is <laughs> like that. It's sort of like every single thing you're sort of, and all comedians are like that, and they all have their notebook, and they're like talking to you, and then you see their eyes go away, and they just pull out a notebook. <laughs> they don't even say anything. Yeah. You're like, I get it, bro, you know? Um, and so now I don't really, like, um, I don't have that, like, heightened mm -hmm. sense of awareness and observation all the time. When I'm watching a movie, you know, I'm like, Emily and I are sort of riffing and making fun of it and, and all that kind of stuff. But not in the way that that was, yep. where I really was like, I got so much material from movies for a while because, you know, I guess I over-adjusted. Yeah. I was like, I can't talk about movies on stage, but I will only talk <laughs> about movies on stage for two years. Um, um, and yeah, I kind of did that. But somewhere you're, you're at the disposal of how much people know the movie or care about it. I mean, there's a story about how... Uh, you really liked a joke you had about Benjamin Button, but then realized people stopped caring about the movie Benjamin. Yeah, I had this <laughs> great joke about Benjamin Button, you guys. <laughs> and I did it. In New York, they used to have this thing called 51st Jokes, and they would have it on like January 2nd or 3rd, and you had to write, do a joke that you had never done before and that you'd written since the new year. And everybody's going up and being like, you know, red numbers are weird. <laughs> and I had this like three minute bit about Benjamin Button <laughs> and it fucking killed. And I remember being like, this movie better be a classic because 
this is a real waste of a great bit. Um, and then that movie didn't really stick around, you know? I feel like people know the idea. People do know the idea, but, but the this goes like real deep. Yeah, the joke is specifically about the first scene of Benjamin Button. Yeah, it's really, it's really, um, I'm trying to remember what it was. It was basically like, like what? You start by being the, like, Kate Blanchett's daughter visits her in the hospital, and she's telling her the Benjamin Button story, and it's basically like, why would you not tell me this Benjamin Button story? Right, and it's sort of like, why didn't you send him to a doctor? (laughs) Like, why didn't he go to a research facility? Like, we could have cured death. (laughs) Instead, you're just, like, talking about this old baby. (laughs) See? Yeah, no, it was a good bet. <laughs> yeah, I had like, you know, three minutes on it. And I remember being like, oh, yeah, this movie's going to be like Forrest Gump. <laughs> it's the same screenwriter. <laughs> and it, it wasn't. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I started sort of doing uh, like jokes about movies and stuff because I would watch them a lot. And then, you know, the Elephant Man thing is real. Mm-hmm. I remember... And so is the um, Ugly Duckling thing. Yeah. Uh, I remember watching Ugly Duckling as a kid and really, really crying, really hard, feeling maybe sadness for the first time in my life. And my mom was like, they're just drawing <laughs> look. Like, does real life look like that? And I was like, that's, even then I was like, this is, this is a weird <laughs> tact, mom. <laughs> Uh, but she had me when she was 16, so she was probably like, you know, 19. Like, <laughs> leave me alone. Your brain is so small. <laughs> Um, and then the Elephant Man, I remember I watched also as a little kid, and I did, I think it was going to be a superhero movie, and then it wasn't. And, um, yeah, so, so all that was kind of real, and it sort of seemed to just fit in together, because I had two sort of separate bits about yeah. it, and then I realized, like, oh, they're the same bit. You, where did that memory live before you did it? You're, was that a thing you were thinking about, you'd think about that time periodically, or were you just sort of like thinking about things from material like, oh, that was a weird thing that happened? Like, how did it even come to you? It's just one of the things that, you know, the, uh, I think just was just part of the memories of my childhood, like me crying at Ugly Duckling, for sure. And then Elephant Man was uh, the scene that I remember was... I mean, this is a real bummer, so maybe I shouldn't get into it, the specific scene. At this point, people are, the curiosity is too They bring out the doctor who's, I think, uh, I forget who the, you know, they bring out naked elephant man on stage for all these, like, doctors to see. And they're all, like, you know, uh, gasping and and all that. And uh, he's just, like, this really lovely guy. And so I remember that was really, really devastating. Yeah. Um, so it's just two different devastating things that, you know, <laughs> taste great together. Um, in that joke, you have the line, you know, that movie took something from me, lost the ability to smell rain. I knew that's what you were going to say. Yeah, it's amazing that you wrote that. Yeah. <laughs> it's a pretty good thing to write. It's a good line. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know, you know, I always thought that that specifically was a thing, an idea I had that I was like, if you lose your humanity, you stop having some sort of beautiful experience. And I, I don't know where, but it was like this free-floating funny thing I had. At one point I was like, you can't see the color purple anymore, but then people thought I was talking about the Whoopi Goldberg movie. <laughs> and I was like, it's like, you really that specific movie? It's on Amazon Prime. Uh, just like that special. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and the big sick, and you're the a big company sick. man. That's right, yeah. That's where I get my toilet paper and my movie deals. (laughs) Um, So I just had that as like a free-floating funny thing, you know. That's the thing, like I would have like, 
so a document of like, you know, all the thoughts I had that weren't like going anywhere, that I hadn't found a, a home for yet. Yeah. Um, which I still do, but for different, you know, for like more like writing movies and stuff, mm -hmm. I have it. Just like little weird little things. Somebody says something weird, you write it down. So I had that for bits, and that's what that was. Yeah. I was like, oh, this is exactly perfectly for that like little idea I have that doesn't go anywhere. The other line that stood out, it, it's, it's like arguably the exact opposite type of line, which is, you know, it's a more personal joke in both that you're talking about your history, but you sneak in like a very specifically personal thing, which you say, I felt like an ugly duckling as a kid, which is sort of like, it does, you don't need that in the joke, but it felt like you were communicating something. Why did you include that? What are you hoping to communicate? Um, what did that line mean? It means I felt an ugly duckling <laughs> as a kid, you know? I mean, truly, truly did. I, I, that's a very good question. I don't know why I included that. It doesn't, the joke doesn't really need it, but it really is. Maybe that is part of why. No, when I watched Ugly Duckling as a kid, I was like a fucking cute kid. <laughs> I, I really was. I was like so cute, shopkeepers were threatened to kidnap me. <laughs> that's, now that's cute. Yeah. They really would. Um, um, but then after that, you know, when I hit eight, all things, all the sizes of my head and face changed. And none agreed with each other. They weren't talking to each other. Yeah. The head was like, we're going into the 20s. And the nose was like, I'm coming with you. And everything else was like, we're going to be eight for a while. <laughs> I had four Adam's apples. <laughs> <laughs> it was terrible. Um, and so uh, I don't know why I included that. I think I was feeling this urge at that time to really be vulnerable on stage. I really was feeling that that was the way that um, I could really become a great stand-up. But it wasn't a calculated thing yeah. the way that it can sound. It really was just like, oh, I want to like reveal myself on stage and this special is called beta male and sort of the thread of it is just me sort of being you know not an alpha male sort of being like a coward yeah a and uh, but but it's not really vulnerable per se except for like little lines like that here and there that pop up but i was feeling that urge that i really wanted to like you know open myself up yeah that line it was only on rewatching. It was like, oh, you snuck in this odor, this part of you that just wanted to be more vulnerable. But like, no one would think. Like, if you watch that joke, I don't know if anyone here picked up on that. And also, the joke you used to say, you know, we all feel like ugly duckling as a kid. But over time, it changed to being more about you. Yeah, that's right. That's very interesting. Yeah, because I hadn't listened to these jokes. You told me what jokes you wanted to yeah. talk about, and I was like, I started listening to it, and I couldn't do it. So I was like, oh, I guess we'll just <laughs> See how figure this out together. Um, yeah, yeah. So I was sort of, those came from me trying to experiment a little bit. And then I started really experimenting because my jokes were so short. And then I was really, at one point, started experimenting with structure a lot. Yeah. And there was, I sort of decided that like the type of joke, and I was just trying to write a certain structure joke over and over and over, which was a little bit of setup that might be longer than most jokes, 30 seconds, but then do so that every single line after that is a punchline. Mm. So you could have 90 seconds to two minutes and every single line I say is a punchline. So I was like trying to sort of like, I was like, that's exact, if I can do that, yeah. that was the 
um, th th that was the structure I was trying to sort of get at. And I feel like I got it a few times. Do you remember which jokes when you think of? Yes, there was a joke about movies. There was a joke about the thing mm. that, um, uh, have you guys heard this album? Raise your hand if you have. Okay, you haven't, that's good. actually good. Um, <laughs> He's now gonna do it all for you. <laughs> this is the whole album. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, Austin, for having <laughs> me. <laughs> Austin was the name of the theater owner. <laughs> we shot it in LA. What a, what a dumb joke for no reason. That was for, not on the special, for to be no, fair. Yeah, that's not on the special. That was for you, <laughs> Roosevelt Hotel. So this one I came up with while I was watching The Thing with Emily. Um, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do it. Okay, I'll try. But you'll <laughs> see the structure of it is a setup and then like as many punchlines as a row as, uh, in a row as I can do. So I'll, I'll try and do it. I don't know if I remember it. Okay, so I was watching The Thing with Emily and at the end, and you know it's a, uh, a horror movie. It's a research facility in the middle of Antarctica and then shit goes down, you know. It's a horror movie, shit goes down. <laughs> And I was watching with Emily, and at the end they have to decide if they're gonna like try and escape or burn the whole camp down to make sure that the monster doesn't get out. And uh, Emily turned to me and was like, what would you do in that situation? Would you try and survive, or would you sacrifice yourself for the rest of humanity? <laughs> and I was like, I'm never going to be in that situation. <laughs> I'm never going to be one of the last guys alive. <laughs> I'm going to be the first guy to die. I die right away. I die so the other characters get to find out that something weird's going on. <laughs> I'm on a makeshift autopsy table 20 minutes into the movie. His heart's missing, I'm that guy. I'm the setup. I bridge acts one and two. I go off alone to find the cat. <laughs> There's a weird noise in the corner, I'll investigate. Ah, dead. I never even find out that there were monsters. <laughs> to me, the plot of the movie was, we're at a research facility and the cat's missing. <laughs> the end. So. I remembered it. Yeah. Uh, so you see that, that's yeah. like 30, 40 seconds of setup, and then every line is a punchline. Yeah. Um, and that's what I was trying to get at. How did it feel to do it now? Felt like, really honestly, <laughs> fucking great. <laughs> <laughs> really did. Yeah. I sort of, at some point, started feeling like it used, like it used to feel. <laughs> Back when I could smell rain. <laughs> As you might know, part of the goal to do this panel was to try to convince you to do stand-up again. Is it? Yeah, that's the subtext. That's it. Follow that along. We're going <laughs> to sprinkle that throughout. <laughs> I mean, the, the grown-up <laughs> switch joke is similarly has a longer setup, and it, it feels like a baby version of that type of joke where you're like, do a longer setup. But the thing that feels most like kum the Kumail is how vividly you describe the hostel. Like, you can just be like, oh, it's like if you're watching a hostel and then this thing happens. But instead, you, like, describe a scene from the hostel to then yeah. set up the cotton candy thing. Right, because I felt very important that they have to be going a certain way for then the image of the kid like eating cotton candy for the first time to work. So I was like, you really have to go hard mm. in the bad way and trust that when you, it's like really shocking if you go the other way. So that the thing that's sweet is really shocking. <laughs> yeah. 
So I was like, I'm gonna like really go there because I saw that movie and I, that scene like really, I was like, uh, gross. <laughs> and uh, so, so I thought that joke only works if I really yeah. go to like the darkest thing from that movie and then I veer, veer back. Take me to watching Freddy versus Jason in that actual moment, in that scene. So just so you know, if you haven't seen that movie, the, it's Kelly Rowland. It is Kelly Rowland. <laughs> from Destiny's Child. From Destiny's Child. <laughs> And the scene that falls is kind of messed up. She says some inappropriate things. Nonetheless. Yeah, she does. And <laughs> yeah. it's not that long ago. Because <laughs> yeah. you're sort of like, you're like, oh, no, Freddy Krueger's going to kill her. And then she says some stuff. And you're like, okay, yeah, go, go get her. <laughs> she uses like a homophobic slur <laughs> yeah, yeah. against Freddy Krueger. And you're like, oh, my loyalties are divided now. <laughs> Which is not part of the joke. No. Because I didn't want to... I didn't want to... Yeah, yeah. I didn't want to say but it But when stage. you saw that, did you immediately like, this is... This is jokes. This is that thing I need to tell people about? Yeah, that really was because... It really was people like in the audience when, when he says, you know, he says... W what he says about going after her, people in the audience were like, oh, <laughs> Like, yeah, man, he's a... He's a, he's a serial killer. <laughs> and before he was like an undead, he was like a child molester. <laughs> he's a bad guy. Yeah, yeah. Also, he's like kind of racist. Yeah. <laughs> um, the line like that was like immediately I was like, okay, that's a joke. Yeah. The line is that killing kids with his murder gloves, but you know, like, but racism not up in here. And I, I what I like about that line, or it's interesting. I remember years ago we were talking, and you talked about playing alternative rooms, especially they want you to hide where the punchline is. You don't end on... That's right. You don't end on murder gloves. You, you put it, and then you end on up and here. Um, talk about that, like, developing a conversational style, how do you, what that means yeah. for people who were not at that conversation we had about it. I'm sorry? You know, people, they weren't at that conversation. No, you guys were not, right? Yeah. No, you weren't. It was in Los Feliz yeah. about eight years ago. Wow. Where was it specifically? Uh, was it at Meltdown? No, no. We, it was at the coffee shop. Oh, right. Yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, yes. Me, Emily, and Joan, and you. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> You've been like a very helpful to me for many years, so thank you. Oh. You really have. <laughs> From back, like, you know, you, even with like the big sick and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, what he's talking about that I really felt was I was in Chicago and I had these sort of one-liner jokes with like a very specific like on-stage character and I started feeling towards the end of my years in Chicago which is I was in Chicago for six years I started feeling I wanted to do something else on stage I needed to sort of be more like myself on stage um, and then um, I actually ended up you know right after Emily got sick when she was okay, I wrote this very, very personal one-man show um, that uh, is, you, you can't find now anymore. And I went from doing like just like one-linery jokes that weren't about myself at all to really doing an hour and a half show that really was very, very personal. Um, right after Emily got better, it's crazy, you know? Um, it's, it's one of those things, you know, Emily and I were both like, we didn't think anything had changed after that, mm. but if we look back, we like both quit our jobs. I wrote this very personal one-man one show. We moved to New York and we got like secretly married, all within three <laughs> months of her getting sick. So clearly some part, something had <laughs> yeah, changed, yeah, yeah. you know? So I did this one-man show that was very personal and then uh, that got me a manager and I moved to New York. 
And when I moved to New York, it was the alt scene and sort of the, I think it was like Aziz had been the biggest guy and he was sort of now uh, like moving um, beyond yeah, that. Yeah. So he had like uh, 30 minutes or less coming out. So he'd sort of a little bit graduated from the alt comedy scene, but still he would do sets. I would see him. So, so that's the era. This was like 2007, 2008, 2009. Um, he was sort of the big comedian, but everybody who was there, their whole style was, the UCB style was, it cannot sound like a joke. You cannot sound anything like a stand-up comedian on stage. It has to feel very conversational. As Soon as I got to New York, I was like, oh, none of the jokes I have for the last five years, six years really work because they're like jokey jokes and this is very much hiding mm. what the jokes are. But I found that very exciting. I found that yeah. very freeing. Um, that I could sort of go up and just be myself and tell a long story. And really, as soon as I moved to New York, the, my, my uh, persona on stage completely flipped, and I sort of became more like myself on stage. And I just started writing a lot, and I would say the best, like, you know, best jokes I've ever written in my life all came from that, like, two years I was in New mm -hmm. York. So I want to talk about, oh, so we got in New York, but so I want to talk a little bit about your Chicago time then and L.A., which is, you know, you were part of two pretty seminal, like, alternative comedy spaces. One was when you were in Chicago in the early 2000s, you performed the Lions Den with a lot of people who became comedians now. No, Hannibal Burris, Pete Holmes, Kyle Kinane was there. Matt Bronger. Matt Bronger. Yeah. Uh, TJ Miller. Yeah. yeah. And then The Meltdown, obviously, which was the show you did with Jonah that Emily produced. Um, can you tell a story about each of those scenes and how it affected how you saw comedy, how you wanted to do comedy? Well, the great thing about The Lions Den was, so we were in Chicago, I moved there in <laughs> 2001. Uh, some of them maybe weren't born then. Yeah, yeah, I know. There's like 2001, sure. It's yeah, it's I guess that was a time. <laughs> Dragons roamed the land. <laughs> but I moved there, and we were doing stand-up, and stand-up was like not cool in Chicago. The Lincoln Lodge, the place I mentioned, was the only place that would draw an audience, and we had a bunch of like open mics, and nobody would go see, see anybody at these open mics. You know, we were performing for each other. So because of that, there were all these really funny comedians who were like, you know, huge now we were performing for each other really so more than anything originality and like point of view was the thing that was prized in Chicago yeah. like you could not do anything that smelled hacky at all you'd get crushed there was a place called the Lions Den that he's talking about it's an open mic like that's where everyone from Chicago would like meet up on Monday nights there, right? The show started at 8.30, you put your name in a hat and they'd like pull it out and you get like, there'd be like 60 comedians doing four <laughs> minutes. 60 comedians doing four minutes. And it was like a massive party and the, sh the night would start so that from one to like 20, the room was packed. Then it would clear it out a little bit and then around 35 when like the, um, you know, the the stand-up comedians who worked at like restaurants would mm. get off work and then they would come with all their like friends who worked at the restaurant so at like around 10.30 it would get packed again and then it was packed till like 2 a.m. <laughs> and we would just go and kill. We were kings, you know. <laughs> but I remember going up once when it was like particularly a great night and I just wanted to kill so I did a joke from like a couple weeks ago and Kyle was like, that was funny but, but I saw you do that <laughs> earlier. And so it was really like you had to bring new shit every week. Yeah. And killing so is not as valuable as doing something new. No. Killing, killing can be like uh, actually like there were comedians who killed that nobody respected. Yeah. It was, it was very, <laughs> very much about just being original and new and having a perspective. That was yeah. the most important thing. Yeah. And then the meltdown? 
And then the meltdown was very different from that, you know, because that really felt like we were sort of in the trenches. Like those those years were hard in terms of like audiences, you know. There weren't there was nobody coming to see us. The meltdown was the opposite of that. I moved to LA. I was acting on a TV show. That's why I moved here. But the TV show wasn't like um, Franklin and Bash. Yeah, it was Franklin and Bash. <laughs> what it wasn't was really. Um, what word are you going to use? I had a great time <laughs> on that show. Cool. <laughs> I did. I really did. I had a great time on that show. And, but I really wanted a place where I could be funny. <laughs> and so um, I just was like, I just wasn't, you know, I was in crisis on that show. I didn't, I, I hadn't ever really acted before. And suddenly I was like acting with people who were very, I just felt out of my element there. And so... We were like, let's start a show. So we looked at a bunch of places, and then Jonah, we met Jonah and become friends with him, and he was like, I do a show in the back of a comic book store once a month. Why don't we partner up and do it weekly? And uh, so basically, and Emily was like, I'll produce it. And Emily's so good because she'd you know, been to all my open mics in Chicago, all my open mics in New York, and she's so smart. She understood what makes a good show and what makes a mm. bad show. She knew immediately what it was. And she had these specific rules about how to do a great show. And her thing was like, our show starts on time. It was an 8 o'clock show. <laughs> she was like, it starts on time. Audiences will get trained. No, no show started on time. They but still don't. That's they still don't. One of the, first, the only shows to ever It was like, if time. it was like 8.03, Emily was livid. <laughs> she was like, what are you doing? Get on stage. So she was like, it starts on time. And that first show that we booked, you know, we basically called in every favor we had. So we always had huge comedians, but that first one, I think we had like Mark Maron, and we basically every, it was like six headliners yeah. on the first show. And it was okay, but really, all, like a couple months in, suddenly it started getting packed. And we would have, it sort of was, the, I think, the best show in LA that's yeah. outside of a comedy club for, for six years, almost exactly six years. Um, and it, it was great because it was the opposite of Chicago outside of the lion's den, which is a really easy, very supportive crowd. Yeah. And um, every week I would just like try new stuff on stage and everybody would go up and kill. And I can count on one hand the number of people who had a bad set there. It was just And you will list all the people. Yeah, here we go. Uh, <laughs> I can think of three already. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, you'll tell me later. You'll I'll know. Them. You'll know at least two of them. No. Okay. I think of four, and you'll know three of them. <laughs> or you'll know of them. I'm, I don't know. If during this panel, I'm gonna think about who they probably is. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> good luck. Um, and so that just became like this party that we would do every week, and everybody would kill, and it was great. For me, the highlight of it was when like Robin Williams dropped in. Yeah. And yeah, it was, and it was my birthday. <laughs> Uh, and Emily and I have back-to-back -back birthdays. Yeah, I know. It's disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was on stage. I, I, you know, had someone come on stage, and I went back there. And it's like, in the green room, it's, it's a tiny green room. Like, it's tiny. And it was, like, unmistakably Robin Williams. <laughs> and, like, he's, like, you know, one of the reasons I started doing stand-up is because of Robin Williams. Like, I watched... I, it's the, the, the biggest fan. And he's, like... Hey, I'm like, hey, I'm Kamal. And he's like, hey, I'm Robin. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> and I was like, do you want to go up on stage? And he said, oh, no. Um, and I was like, are you sure? And his hat 
and his coat wore off and he was like, okay, just two minutes. (laughs) And then on stage I was like, ladies and gentlemen, Robin Williams. People are kind of clapping because they think it's some like UCB comedian (laughs) who's going to do like Mork and Mindy jokes, you know? Like fucking alt comedy nonsense. (laughs) Anti-comedy dog shit. Yeah, yeah. I like (laughs) anti-comedy. Anyway, and then it's like the wave of like uh, recognition and applause as they realize, oh, that's the real Robin Williams. And he crushed on stage, and he was so good, and he came off stage, and he was like, thank you, I needed that. And that was so, so lovely. Then a few weeks later, he came back, did another set, <laughs> was fantastic again, and then, you know, he passed away right after that. Yeah. Um, not long after that. So, so that was really, really a, a highlight. There are other highlights, massive comedians that dropped in, but many of them have been canceled <laughs> since then. <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah. I, I'm sure you could think of them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know who they are, we don't have to talk about it. So, um, part of the reason I wanted to pick those, that section, because, you know, it really gives an insight of how, how you see things, how you look at movies. And, and part of it is sometimes you'll talk about how when you were a kid, you'd watch a movie every day. Yes. And there's something about not just doing that, but that you, you can imagine you as a kid be like, I watch a movie every day. That's what I do. Why was he watching a movie every day? What was he not doing? How did that shape how you saw, interacted with the world? What I was not doing was interacting with yeah, the yeah, world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I watched a movie every day, you know? I really did. Like, every day, my dad would go on the weekends and get, like, a stack of VHSs, and I would just, like, work through them, and I'd watch a movie every day. I just wasn't really, you know like an outdoorsy kid at all. Like I wasn't good at sports and I had friends, but I wasn't like going around hanging out with them. I was like definitely like just like stay indoors all the time, play video games and watch movies. And so, um, but like more than anybody else, um, not anybody else I've ever met because now I've met people that you're like, Jesus, you know like every movie ever made. (laughs) But more than all my friends, I was definitely just like watching movies all the time. That's why I feel like so I just feel so like lucky and grateful that I get to like work in this industry yeah. now. It's really, it's really, really magical. Um, but yeah, so when I was doing sort of, I think I just would watch movies and I figured out what about them I liked and what about them I didn't like. And, and I think when I started doing comedy on like movies, which I did a lot of jokes on movies for a little while, it just made sense because that, that's the stuff that I'd like was in my bones, yeah. you know? We'll be right back with more Kumail Nanjiani, live from Vulture Festival. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from 26.2 Team Milk and their new docu-series, Running Sucks. Is running the worst? Yeah. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I hate it so much. (laughs) I hate it so freaking much. That you're a real runner now! I hate it. I'm Abby Ayers, a 37-year-old mom from Utah who found herself running across the Manhattan Bridge in my first race ever. Running Sucks celebrates women who run and the running communities that carry them across the finish line. Running helped me in so many ways postpartum. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. For every person like you, I'm telling you, you belong, and I'm telling you, you can do it. I never thought the words would leave my mouth, but yes, I'm planning on running a marathon. (laughs) I can't even say it without laughing, because, like, who would have thought? 
Watch Running Sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course. Now back to Kamel Nanjiani, live from Vulture Festival. So speaking of movies, you made uh, one. Uh, uh, I've made more. Yeah, but you made one that... Maybe one that's really... You made one that uh, goes into the question I'm going to ask. So around the time you were working on this special in 2012, uh, you appear on a live episode of You Made It Weird with Judd Apatow at South by Southwest. Is that when it was? 2012? Yeah, I was there. You were there? Wow. I know. Wow. Um... This led, uh, this led to you having a meeting with Judd. You tell him the Emily story. He tells you to write that movie. Um, this was a story that you said you, you didn't think you would be able to work into your stand-up. Um, again, there's longer stories in here, but also, you know, you worked on Unpronounceable and felt you didn't want to keep on working on it. This is all to say, um, were you feeling there's a limit to what you personally could express through stand-up around that time? Definitely. I was starting to feel that. I just want to say another weird thing about that show. It was a Pete Holmes panel show, and the show was, we'd all met Judd for the first time, and it was me, and Judd produced The Big Sick, Pete Holmes, and Judd ended up producing Crashing, Chris Gather, Judd ended up producing a special, and Todd Barry. <laughs> <laughs> but Todd left early before Judd showed up, and he's like, that's the worst fucking thing, yeah. worst show I've ever left early. <laughs> yeah. It's a valuable lesson. It was like everybody on that show ended up doing something with Judd. Um, yeah, I was starting to feel on stage, you know, that if it doesn't get a laugh, it's not successful. Mm. And that's limiting, you know, about the things you can sort of talk about or do. Um, and so I, I don't remember what it was, but there was a bunch of jokes that I was trying to do on stage that were like sort of vulnerable and personal but weren't working because they just weren't meant to be stand-up jokes or I, I hadn't figured yeah. out how to make them stand-up jokes. So I was feeling a little bit like like sort of a little bit constrained by stand-up. There are great comedians who have, you know, are able to do everything on stage. Um, I never got to the point where I felt absolutely completely creatively fulfilled doing yeah. stand-up. Yeah. So uh, I want to play a clip from uh, that movie, 2017's The Big Sick. Play the big sick clip, please. So, uh... Big Sick. Yeah. 9-11. No, I mean, I've always wanted to have a conversation with about it with people. You've never talked to people about 9-11? No, what's your, what's your stance? What's my stance on 9-11? Oh, um, anti. It was a tragedy. I mean, we lost 19 of our best guys. Huh? That was a joke, obviously. 9-11 was a terrible tragedy, and it's not. Funny to joke about it. <laughs> Still kills. So, um, I believe both Michael Showalter, the director, and Emily um, didn't want that joke. They wanted to cut it. Uh, tell me a story of coming up with it and why you fought to keep it in. <laughs> One thing about that is, you know, after the joke, I'm sort of like mumbling for a little while because the next beat is a very serious, dramatic beat. 
Um, and we, we had to add like 10 seconds of me kind of mumbling because people were laughing so much that they were laughing into <laughs> the serious scene and missing like a really important piece of information. So we added like 15 seconds of me yeah. like, you know, apolo trying to apologize. Um, the joke came from, it was, it was me, Emily, Judd, I don't remember who else was there, but this was like before the movie was greenlit or, I mean, it didn't get greenlit until right before we started shooting, but you know, Judd was sort of, he kept saying it needs to be the worst people to be going through a situation mm. with, with the, e together, you yeah. know, like he was like, it has to be like constant conflict and like super fucking weird the entire time. Like these people should not be together in this situation and yet they are. And he was like, for instance, he was like, you know, maybe like uh, her dad can ask you how you feel about 9-11. And I, I remember I just said, it was a tragedy, we lost 19 of our best guys, yeah. to Judd. <laughs> and, uh, and I laughed and nobody else laughed. <laughs> and uh, I was like, guys, that's, that, because uh, you know, some, that's, what, that's the best thing about riffing on stage sometimes. You like say something and you're like, I could not have sa sat down to write that. <laughs> that had to come from whatever th this thing was, you know? And so I was like, that's really funny. So I wrote it down and then I, we put it, I put it in the script and Emily and Mike Showalter, who directed the movie, were both like, that can't be in the movie, that can't be in the movie. And I was like, let's just film it, okay? Let's just film it. And then filming that scene actually ended up being, it ended up being kind of a rough day of filming. Mm -hmm. Just because when you do a comedy scene that's just two people talking, after the two takes, it doesn't really feel funny anymore. And also it's a joke. You do like, you know, a bunch of takes and it's just me saying, sort of weirdly defending 9-11 <laughs> like 15 times. So it starts to feel a little awkward. Yeah. And it was a little bit awkward, you know, because uh, the scene is awkward. And, um, um, and so then when we cut it, they took that joke out and I was like, guys, we have to have that joke in. Like we have to. And uh, I think we tested it without that joke. Um, and I was like, let's just test it. There's no, you know, if they don't laugh, it will, will, and I was truly the only one pushing for it. Just be like, just test it with it. Which is when you show it to an audience that like before the movie's done and you like get scores and you figure out how to re-edit it. And it did so well at the first screening that there was no like discussion about yeah. that after that. Um, and I was just pushing for it because I thought it was very funny and surprising. <laughs> I just thought it was a great <laughs> joke. I mean, it's also like, I, I was thinking about like, did you, your character have to be a comedian for the movie to make sense? And the part of it is, it depicts how a comedian would interact in this situation. You, you are, were a comedian when the situation happened. For you not to be a comedian, it would be weird that this is how he interacts with people. Yes, that's right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's, he's always making jokes, you know? Um, and uh, Judd, obviously, you know, Judd loves stand-up comedy. And from the beginning, Judd was like, you should be a comedian, because then, you know, you could just do that. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, and, and then you can have a character who's saying the worst possible thing at every moment, and it's fine, because that's kind of what comedians do. You know, following your career closely, it did feel like this movie coming out really did change something in that you took this very personal story that was about your experience, and then when it was received, it became about a lot of people's experience. Can you talk about what it was like to go from doing a thing just because you want to express yourself personally to realize it will be meaningful to other people and how did it change how you thought about your career? Good question. Um, 
I honestly had just really needed to make this movie, you know. For me, I was like, we have to do this story. And I had to, like, convince Emily to do it. She didn't want to do it at first. She didn't want the story to be told. Um, and then when she didn't want the story to be told, she didn't want to be part of the team doing it. So yeah. the first, like, draft, which I have to stress, was not the movie and absolutely terrible. <laughs> was just me but yeah. it was it was not and then when emily came on suddenly it was like way better um so we were sitting at sundance and it was the first time like really people were going to see it and uh you know it's at the big theater so it's like a thousand people in a in a theater and you know up to this point nobody's seen a tiny test audience and i was sitting there and emily turned to me and she was like just so you know this is the last time this is going to be our story mm. And suddenly it hit me like a ton of bricks. I was like, I had never thought far enough that anybody would like see it. For me, the goal was just to make the movie. W having people watch it was not something that was part of my math at all. I hadn't even considered it. It's not like I had no expectation for it. I just had not thought about that part of it. I was like, I just want to make this movie great. When the movie's done, you're like, I really like that movie. I thought that's the, that's the mm -hmm. end of it. And as the lights were going down, it really kind of hit me. I was like, wow, this is like a lot, of, this is a pretty big matzo ball, <laughs> you know? Like you're really, very, something very, very personal that now people are gonna see, at least these thousand people yeah, will yeah. see. Um, and so people's reaction to it and people really sort of connecting to it and seeing themselves in it was, was surprising and I didn't quite know how to handle it. And I still really don't know how to handle it. And I don't know it's if it's affected how I do my work going forward. I don't think you can anticipate any kind of reaction from mm -hmm. people. I think all you can do is make something that you can be proud of. That's really as far as you can think. I think that's part of the problem with Hollywood is people try and guess what people want and there's just no way to know that, yeah. you know? That's why I think, you know, once you have like a movie that's a hit that has like dragons, suddenly there's like a ton of movies <laughs> with dragons because people are like, people want dragons. No, they just like that movie. Yeah. Um, and so, w although we did not leave a wake of, you know, coma movies after <laughs> <Yeah>. us. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's what people want. <laughs> did anyone pitch the bigger sick? Uh, yes. We have actually been contacted about a sequel. Um, and uh, I was like, I don't, I don't what is it going to be? Uh, th this podcast? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's very uninteresting. <laughs> Our lives became boring after that. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So one of the byproducts of this movie's success is um, you're able to very deliberately pursue acting in a way that you hadn't. So um, I want to play a clip of one of your the upcoming acting projects. I want to play the teaser for Chippendales. Play that teaser now. A world of luxury right at your fingertips. This could be unlike anything else. You're going to make a lot of money. Trust me. This is my life. Every cent I have, I've put into this. You and me stick together. Or you and me go to war. Are you ready? You can't take this personally. This is business. November 22nd on Hulu. 
Um, so I, I, I read that you were hesitant to first take on this part, but when, when I was watching the series, it felt like um, you were able through this part to express a thing that I feel like you were, haven't been able to in previous work and things that you've talked about before in terms of uh, your own insecurities and your own relationship to anger. What, what was it like having this project to channel that? What was this project like? I think you talked about how it physically hurt you. It was absolutely amazing. It's the first thing I've done where um, my character isn't funny, you know? I've done, obviously, you know, Big Sick has, like, dramatic stuff in it, but everything I've done has, like, a pretty high percentage of comedy. This was the first time that that yeah. wasn't part of it. So I was scared to do it because I knew, you know, being funny was something, like, I knew I could do, I had, and even if, you know, I've done some movies that I don't think are good movies, but I'm, like, happy with, you know, some jokes in them. Yeah. And I'm like, that's that's... It's great. I, I was able to sort of show the thing that that I feel is one of my strengths. So this didn't have that, you know. Um, but in a way, it's when I was first sort of on stage, starting to get a little bit frustrated, not being able to, you know, um, do anything except get laughs. This was—I don't want to say the culmination of that, but this was exactly the kind of thing that I would never have been able to mm. do, you know. And it really—I I really was. Um, you know, the, the anger stuff and all of that. So the people who don't know, the guy who created Chippendales was an immigrant from India, and the story's like wild. Like, people get murdered and stuff. It's a true story. Um, and I play a guy who's like, would you say he's a bad guy? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I play a bad guy, you know, which is very exciting. And so I was able to ex do a lot of the things that I had never figured out to be able to, like, really talk about on stage. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you a stupid question, which is, is acting fun? It seems like you really like acting. Listening to you on podcasts, over the last 10 years, it's like, I love stand-up, I'm doing, I'm obsessed with stand-up, and then you just see you fall in love with acting, and is acting really fun? It's so fun! <laughs> it's the fucking best! It's so, it's so fun. I love it so much. Um, I don't know why, you know, it's the same feeling like when you're on stage and you're really like sort of in the zone, sometimes you, I remember having this feeling which is like, oh, uh, knowing what the laugh is going to be before you say the line. Sometimes when you're really like in the pocket, you have that, you know, mm -hmm. and sometimes you say something and you're like, oh, if you thought that was <laughs> funny, wait for this. That's kind of why I would riff so much on stage at the beginning because I was like, oh, uh, wait till I get to the shit I actually sat yeah, down yeah. and wrote, you know. But sometimes I would get this feeling on stage that I was like, I knew what the laugh was going to be before I say it. You're sort of like in the present and the future at the same time. It's like this really exciting thing. And that's sort of, with acting, it's the same kind of thing where you're sort of like talking to somebody and you really feel like, you're, you're like kind of surprising yourself. Mm. I think that that's what's really fun about it. You're just sort of, you, you know, I prepare a lot. I do a lot of prep for acting. I like work on the scene a lot. And then when they yell action, I forget all that and just try and, and just be in the moment and see what happens. And sometimes you go to weird places. That's kind of at my best when I was doing stand-up was the same where it was like, I've written the jokes, but I've forgotten them. Mm -hmm. And now I'm on stage just seeing how it comes out, see what happens. That's why it was never tried to be work, word perfect, yeah, yeah. you know? It's the same with acting where some, you just like really like... Sometimes they yell cut and you're like, whoa, wow, that was exciting. And it's a scene where you're just like very quiet. And I learned that excitement from working with like Holly Hunter on The Big Sick where I was like, oh, acting can be that. Yeah. Like that is really exciting. I imagine stand-up, especially the writing, it can be a very intellectualized 
exercise and there's and acting when you're doing it right it is you're in your body and you're doing it I imagine yeah um, the I think the prep for acting is very intellectual like figuring out how to play that character was a, like you know months of intellectual work and then it's completely not intellectual at all yeah. you're just really really just sort of reacting and in the moment and really seeing the other person I know this sounds all insufferable but <laughs> it really really is completely your brain is completely off and for someone like me who has a problem who's always had a problem with overthinking sometimes with stand-up that was also something that would come in you know where I would like start overthinking a joke wouldn't do well and you're like why didn't that do well that should have done well maybe I should have done it like this well, what do I do next all these things are happening and they pull you out of the moment because you're like looking at what you just did and trying to see how to with acting the goal is to like so not think at all just be in the moment um, it almost feels to me like meditating or something. Yeah. Today, uh, November 12th, we're speaking. Do you think of yourself as a comedian? Like yeah. if I were to say comedian, actor, Kumail Nanjiani, would part of you think, you mean actor, comedian, Kumail Nanjiani, or actor, writer, Kumail? No, there was a moment earlier when you said, you are a comedian, you were a comedian, and that hurt my feelings. <laughs> I was like, this motherfucker over here. <laughs> Yeah, no, I definitely consider myself a comedian. Um, I definitely consider myself still a comedian, and I love doing it. Um, I just haven't done it since February 2020 yeah. um, at all. Um, I don't know why I stopped that specific date. <laughs> <laughs> Something happened. 2020 was the year I just finished like at Shooting Eternals, and I was like, this will be the year I do stand-up. Uh, and then, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it didn't happen. I mean, like, right now you're in front of an audience, or you're like, ooh, baby, this is... This is, this is what I... Yeah, I love do. it. <laughs> it's great. I love it. I love it. The hardest thing about getting back to stand-up, and I've had little breaks before I s kind of stopped over two years ago. The hardest thing about coming back from little breaks is, for some reason, the jokes that you were doing before stop working. Mm. So when you come back from a break, you come back from a three-month break, you need new jokes. But it's very hard to get into the gear of writing new jokes if you're like not used to being on stage. Yeah. So, you know, so so that that's always a tricky thing when you come back. Is for me the big barrier to coming back is having the time to do jokes and test them out and do jokes and test them out. It's it's sort of a commitment for me to like, like getting ten great new minutes w would take me a while. Yeah. Um, you mentioned before this that you had another joke in this vein that you might remember. Was it the thing joke or do you have another joke that you feel like you might remember? I think the thing joke was the one that was Got about it. movies, but I was really trying to, like I did a joke about the cyclone, which was the um, mm -hmm. uh, oldest functional roller coaster yeah. in the world. It's like a, and that was another one that was the same structure that was like, uh, so in Coney Island they have a roller structure that's a, a ro ro rolling, uh, ro rolling coaster. <laughs> they have a roller coaster that's, that's made of wood, it's from 1927. And I wrote it, and it was like a terrifying experience. So I wrote a joke about it that was also like a three-minute joke. And it was the same thing. I was like, I want to have like a little bit of setup, and then like 20 punchlines in a row. And so that's what I did. Um, and then there was a joke I did about a drug called Cheese. Yes. You know that joke? Um, and that was, Cheese was basically, it was like this uh, drug that was big for a little bit. I'm not going to do the joke. <laughs> Do you guys know this? You, you don't know like, the cheese joke? It was like a mixture. It was like, the joke was, it was, I saw like news reports about it. There's a new drug, it's called cheese. It's sweeping the nation. Kids are doing it, it's called cheese. That's like the street name for it, cheese. And I looked it up, and cheese is Tylenol PM and heroin. <laughs> so really, it's heroin. 
It's mostly heroin. Heroin is doing the heavy lifting. And then I had more that was like, I can't add like, you know, heroin to pancakes and go, I made a new drug. It's called shake cakes. I forget what the rest of it yeah. was. But I say basically it's, it's heroin. It's mostly heroin. Like someone, I remember I got off stage and Julian McCullough was like, you say heroin 23 times in that joke. <laughs> I was like, yeah. Sometimes, you know, that one I was like, how many times can I repeat the same thing <laughs> and get a laugh from it? Um, you had a joke where someone calls you Kumar and then you, you, the, the joke goes to basically you explain that your goal is to be so famous that you are the name people shout at you. Uh, do you feel like you're that famous now? Um, yeah, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I was trying to think. Like, you know, Hassan Minaj did like fucking five minutes <laughs> on me on his Netflix special, which is very funny. But I was like, oh, I didn't know that I was like that famous. <laughs> but um, did you see that special? Yeah. Yeah. I think that joke's, that joke's very funny, <laughs> but I, I didn't know that he was doing that. Um, I don't know. I mean, who else would it be? Like, if you, listen, if you had to be racist to a brown man yeah. on the street. I will say, especially now with the muscles, it's, you know, you, you know it's only you, right? It's, it's only me? That, that looks like you. That's very, that's a shame. There should be more of us. Are you a brown guy? You're half Mexican, okay. So you're brown. <laughs> so work out a lot, and then someone can... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, please. Yeah. I want to test out this hypothesis. <laughs> so that sound means it's time for the final segment of the show. It's called a laughing round. It's like a lightning round because this is a comedy podcast. I call it the laughing round. Okay, laughing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I like that. That's Pete Holmes's laugh. Sure it is. <laughs> He's got a very specific laugh. Uh, is there a joke that you wish you could steal? You saw another comedian. There's a joke in another comedian. You're like, I wish I had that joke. I can tell that joke. It's my joke. No one will be mad at you. It's yours. There were a lot of there was a lot of jokes by uh, Jake Johansson. Do you know Jake Johansson? He's a very very funny comedian. One of the reasons I got into stand up as well. You know, he has a joke about He Man that I was like, <laughs> oh, I would be great with that <laughs> joke. I could really wear that joke. Um, yeah. Uh, do you have a short story of an interaction with a legendary comedian, living or dead, that you'd be willing to share with us? That's, uh, yeah. Well, there's the uh, Robin Williams one, for sure. Um, I'm trying to think who else. I sort of, when I meet someone who's like super legendary, I kind of do this thing where I like pretend like I don't care. Because <laughs> I'm like, I don't want to come off like a sycophant, and then Sometimes I think I'm rude. <laughs> when I met Fred Armisen for the first time, <laughs> I, I had this like, we were, I was doing a show at the Bell House, and I'm a huge fan of Fred's. You know, this was before Portlandia. A huge fan of Fred's. I thought he was the funniest guy in the world. And I had this little like article in the New York Times about me. And so I met him, and he's like, hey, um, he was like, hey, you were just in the New York Times. And I was like, I know. And then I walked away. <laughs> I was like, Ugh. <laughs> Why? I know, Fred. Um, remember when you hosted SNL? Yeah, I do. I do. I do remember when I hosted SNL. What was that like? Um, it was great. It actually ends up... It, it, I, I was so nervous for it, but it's really not a nerve-wracking experience. It's really more than anything an exhausting experience. Because you do that show twice. 
that same night. You do a dress rehearsal that's longer with three more sketches and then they cut them. And there's this like, you know, you're like that week is so busy. You're like going, 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 going. And then you, I went up and I did the first show and it like went great. And I was like, yes. And then I was like, oh shit, no, that was the <laughs> rehearsal. I have to do all that again. But that was the, I don't think that, I wouldn't say that was the last time, but that why I was like, oh, I want to like write a good yeah. stand-up set. And I hadn't been doing stand-up a lot then. And I just kind of like wrote this new seven-minute set that then I, you know, went to the cellar a whole bunch and did it. And that was really, really fun. And I would say that was the last time I was really like trying to build a stand-up thing. If you watch that clip of me hosting the, the opening monologue, mm -hmm. they were like, just so you know, sometimes Steven Spielberg comes and watches. And I was just like doing my set and I looked over and it was like that far, like that, just like the right, like, you know, row seven. I'm like talking, talking and suddenly I'm like, oh, that's definitely Steven Spielberg. <laughs> and if you watch it, you could see the moment I spot him and I like stumble for a little bit. And you could see, like, if you watch it, you'll know exactly what moment it is. And I like take a deep breath and I look away. <laughs> and, then I, and then I go back to it. So that was very exciting. Um, do you have any advice for an aspiring comedian? You just have to do a lot of sets. There's really no shortcut. Um, and I think, you know, I read a book called uh, Zen and the Art of Stand-Up. And the piece of advice from it that I really got was, the work is all the writing. That's the work. Being on stage is the payoff for mm -hmm. that. And that changed how I approached um, performing because I used to get really nervous to get on stage. And I was like, no, that's true. I've done all the work. This is where, this is the part that's like the, the payoff. Yeah. Um, and last one, do you have a joke that uh, you thought was really funny, you tried it a bunch of times, it never worked or almost never worked, but you'll go to your grave being like, that was so funny, I was right there wrong. <laughs> yeah, oh, for sure. I'm trying to think of what it was. Shit, I wish I'd prepared. Oh man, this is really gonna bug me because I have a few jokes like that where I'm like, you're all, how is everyone? I remember <laughs> one, oh God. <laughs> I'm trying to think of how I did it. Oh, I can't. It's embarrassing. Now that I think of it, I'm like, no, they were right. <laughs> yeah, I was wrong. At one point, a friend of mine, Nate Craig, who's a comedian, I did that on stage and he was like, don't do that joke again. <laughs> it wasn't offensive. It was about video games. They were just, he was just like, that, that doesn't look, that's not a good look. <laughs> just because it's so unfunny. He's like, that was weird. <laughs> He's, he, I guess he was right. Yeah. Ugh. It was about how... <laughs> this is so hard. <laughs> it's really hard. It was about like video games, you know, like old 2D, like side-scrolling video games. Like Mario has to like go get the princess. Mm -hmm. But because it's like 2D, I, I can't believe I... I <laughs> If you have to explain a joke this much, <laughs> so you know, so they're gonna love it. I was like, he's like very like anal, and he has, he's like, I have to go as the crow flies. Like that's how I like justified it. That's why it's a straight line. And he's, and I was like, this lava pit. Like if he goes around, he wouldn't have to jump over it. But he's so like, I gotta get there the most efficient way. That's why he has to jump over the lava pits. Anyway, Nate Craig was right. <laughs> Kumail Nagiani, thank you so much. Thank have you, a great everyone. That's it for another episode of Good One. You can watch Beta Mail on Paramount Plus, The Big Stick on Amazon Prime Video, and Chip and Dale's on Hulu. 
Follow Kumail on social media at Kumail N. Good News produced by myself, Jelani Carter, and Camila Salazar. Governor Shrikashin did our theme song. Write a view and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. Email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com or tweet at us at goodonepodcast. I am Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Good One is a production of Vulture and the Vox Media Podcast Network. We're here every other Thursday. Have a good one. Welcome to Good One. Show about talking them jokes. Mm, son. Hey, 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 good one. It's a good one. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.